All right, so we're in part two of a series called Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do. See, I think a lot of times we do things in church, and sometimes I think we think we just do them out of tradition. And we're not really sure why we do certain things. So last week we talked about baptism. And we're gonna, today we're going to talk about communion. We're going to talk about, you know, why, why do we tithe? Why do we raise our hands? Why do we even sing? Why do we even get married? And congratulations to our newlyweds over there. Mike and Nicole. I just snuck that right in there. So we'll do a, a service on you. Know, why do we get married? There's a lot of things that we do in church, and I think sometimes we wonder, what's the real point of it? Is it just all tradition, or is there really any meaning behind it? And so today we're going to talk about communion, and we're going to talk about the power that's behind communion. Because I think sometimes we forget how powerful some of these things that we do in church are. I think we think there's so much tradition, we forget the power of God that's actually behind them. So we're going to talk a lot today about understanding the power that God gives us through grace and faith. And last week, I think we talked about how baptism really is a powerful tool that God uses to increase our gift of faith and grace. And today we're going to talk about communion. I think it's another one of those powerful things that God gives us that's going to just increase our faith and increase the grace that he gives to us. Recently, I heard John Ortberg say this. And John Ortberg, he's a pastor of a church in California. He said, the grace of God... No, back up. I said that wrong. How do I say it? I got to get this right because it's a little bit. All right. He said, Christians burn through more grace than a 747 burns through jet fuel. And I think that's a great picture of how as Christians we need a lot of grace in our life. We really need God to give us a lot of grace because we understand what happens to a 747 when it runs out of jet fuel. It's going to crash, or it's never going to get off the ground. And I like that picture that he gives us because it really understands us how much we really need the grace of God in our life on a daily basis to kind of just continue what God had started in our life when we got saved, to continue to give us the ability to do things we could never accomplish on our own. See, when we got saved, God gave us the gift of grace and faith so we could believe something that we never would believe on our own. And I think we make an error sometimes in the body of Christ where we think that grace and faith kind of starts and stops at salvation. That once we get saved, once we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, then kind of got enough grace and faith that we need. And then from then on out, we're kind of on our own, kind of on our own to kind of navigate things. Maybe we learn a little bit more in church. We can do a little bit more on our own. And I think part of this message series is just to help us understand how much we really need to rely on the grace of God each and every day. That the grace of God is much, much bigger than just what happened on our day of salvation. See, sometimes we have a tendency to forget how much grace that we really need in God in our lives to sustain us. See, one of the hardest things for us as believers is self-sufficiency. We all kind of get that idea of, I want to do it on my own. I want to figure this out on my own, that maybe if I study enough on my own, I'll figure it out, and I can go through the life on self-reliance, and that's the total opposite of what Christ wants us to do. Part of being a Christian is just following Christ and just totally relying on Jesus Christ and His grace. So I want to understand a little bit more today about how to rely more on God, because when we are just self-reliant, it's really a devastating thing, because we're just relying on ourselves. Instead, we need to be transformed by the power of God. 
In 2 Peter, Peter gives us this unique instruction. He says, rather, you must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we know we grow in grace by following Jesus Christ, by surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. And that's part of baptism and communion. It's a reminder to us of what God wants to do in our life. And it's a reminder to us of what He's already done in our life to help us avoid self-reliance. Last week we talked quite a bit about baptism and, and how it's really significant, how it's more than just a tradition or more than it's just a ceremony, but there's actually a powerful thing that happens when people get baptized. And I read from Matthew 3 where it talks about when, when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened over him and the Spirit of God came on him like a dove and he received affirmation from his Father when God said to him, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we look at Jesus and here he is a perfect guy. He never sinned, but yet he needed to be baptized. He needed more revelation. He needed the Spirit of God to be on him, and he needed the affirmation of God. If you look at how much a perfect man could not be self-reliant, how much more do all of us need to trust and rely on the power of God? And that's the beautiful part of baptism. You see that picture of going into the water and coming out with a new revelation of who God is, a new understanding of who he is, and the power of God, but also the affirmation from God. And I talked last week, and I'm going to repeat this part even from last week because I think it's so important. We saw here in Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. God says to him, you are my beloved son who I'm well pleased. And you turn the page and you get into Matthew 4 and the enemy comes to Jesus and says, who do you really think you are? See, the text says that Satan said to Jesus, said, if you are the son of God. Notice what Satan does right after Jesus gets baptized and hears affirmation from God. The devil comes and says, who do you really think you are? You really think you're the son of God? Do you really think you're the child of God? See, that's one of the greatest lies that the enemy does to us each and every day. He lies to us about who we really are. And that's his strategy. If he can get us to doubt our relationship with God, he's pretty much set. If he can get us to doubt our identity as who we are as believers in Jesus Christ, he's pretty set. But see, then what the enemy did, he went on to Jesus, and he said to Jesus, he said, okay, here's some stones. Why don't you turn them to bread? Why don't you jump off this cliff and see if the angels will save you? And said to Jesus, look, I will give you all of this. And the enemy just goes to Jesus and lies and lies and lies. See, the thing is, everything that the enemy offered to Jesus, he didn't need from the enemy because God already promised that he would take care of him. God promised each of us that he's going to take care of our needs, our, our food, our shelter, our protection. When the enemy comes in and lies, he has nothing to offer except lies and deceit. So that baptism is a beautiful picture that Jesus was baptized and he went into the wilderness and he had the strength from his baptism to withstand the lies of the enemy. It'd be nice if that's how the Christian life worked, that we got baptized, the enemy lied to us, and then we overcame that and we're done with the enemy. But we know the enemy continues to lie day after day after day after day. And so God had a strategy to help us. He has a strategy to help us because in John 10, verse 10, it says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give us life, to give us a rich and satisfying life. So what do we do about this enemy? What do we do about this enemy that's constantly coming after us and constantly lying to us? How do we withstand against that? 
See, God has a plan to give each of us more jet fuel to keep us soaring high in the sky, to keep us soaring over the plans of the enemy, and that jet fuel is always grace. God has a plan to give us more and more grace each and every day. Now, one of the ways God gives us more grace is through communion. Today, we're going to celebrate communion. Some of you refer to communion as the Eucharist. Some of you refer to it as the Last Supper. Whatever name we call it, it is a powerful tool that God has given to each of us to remember who we are as children of God. So before we talk about communion and what the New Testament says about communion, I want to go back to the Old Testament. I want to talk about the Old Testament in Exodus, or Genesis 14. When we kind of see the very first reference to communion. Now, the word communion is not used. The words Last Supper is not used. But we see King Melchizedek offer bread and wine to Abram. We see kind of this idea of communion being even established back in, in Genesis 14. So let me set up the story a little bit. We hear of King Melchizedek, and King Melchizedek, he is the king of Salem. Salem was the original word for Jerusalem. So Melchizedek's the king of Salem. His name means king of righteousness, and Jerusalem means peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness that comes from the city of peace. And he comes and he offers to Abram bread and wine and a blessing from God. But at that meeting, it's a unique meeting. I didn't set this up totally right. I kind of jumped ahead of myself. I'm excited. <laughs> All right, where did I mess up? Let me, th- All right, let me check my notes a minute. All right. So I'll back up. So here we do. We have Abraham. Abraham just finished a war, had a major victory, was this 318 people in his small little army. And after his victorious war, he goes out and he meets King Melchizedek and he meets King Sodom. King Melchizedek, the good guy, the son of righteousness, king of Jerusalem. And over here we have the king of Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram goes out to have a meeting with these two kings, and Melchizedek offers him bread and wine, and he offers him a blessing from the Lord. And King Sodom, on the other hand, offers him deception. And the choice is, what is Abram going to pick? What is he going to pick? Is he going to pick one or the other, or is he going to pick both of them? So Melchizedek's a very important character, and it's very unique because it's the first time the word priest is also used in the Bible. So King Melchizedek, he's a king and a priest. And in Psalm 110, you're probably like, yeah, I remember that name in the Psalms, Melchizedek, because you don't hear that too often. It's actually from where Jesus comes from. Melchizedek actually is kind of a picture of who Jesus Christ is. It's kind of a picture of what Christ will do, and King Sodom is a picture of the enemy. King Sodom was a king of probably one of the most wicked cities recorded in history. So there we have Abram standing before two different kings, the good king and the king of evil. So let me read to you from Genesis 14, 17, verse 23, some of our texts that we are going to talk about today. So it says, after Abraham returned from his victory over Ketolomer and all of his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavel, that is the king's valley. In Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God most high brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing. 
Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all of the goods he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. Very interesting little package, passage. Pretty powerful, and you're probably all kind of wondering, what does this really mean? So let me back up a little bit and explain this to you. Some of you remember the story of Abram. Later on, his name was changed to Abraham. Two chapters earlier in Genesis 12, God goes to Abraham and says, I have a plan for your life. I have a pretty big plan for your life. You need to leave your family, you need to leave your relatives, and you need to go where I'm calling you to go, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you famous, I'm going to give you many descendants, and I'm going to protect you. Anybody who curses you, I will curse them, and I'm going to bless you. So Abraham has this incredible promise from God, but what he needs to do is follow God to where God is going to lead him to go. So Abraham packs up his entire family, his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, and they go on their way to follow God, and they go to different cities to follow God. But along the way, Abram and his nephew Lot, their herds continue to grow and grow as the Lord continues to bless them. And their herds get so big that they have a hard time feeding the herds during the day. They're running out of land as they travel. So Abram and Lot, they decide, okay, let's go separate ways. So Abram says to Lot, okay, you pick first where you want to go. And Lot said, okay, I'll go down in that area. And he went to the area close to Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a very good choice. Actually, the book in Genesis 13, 13, it tells us that it was a very sinful place. So Lot knew what he was getting himself into, <coughs> but he went anyway. So Abram went to a different location, and they both settled down there to take care of their livestock. So things are going, life continues to move on, and one day Abram hears that the city of Sodom was overtaken by four kings. These four kings formed an alliance. And they went after the city of Sodom, and they captured it. They overtook the entire city, and they captured Lot and all of his family. And when Abram heard about that, he decided that he wanted to go and rescue Lot and his family. It's an interesting thing what Abram decided to do, because Abram only had a little army of 318 men. And while the Bible doesn't record how big the other armies were of the four kings, most commentaries suggest that probably each king had way over 1,000 people in their, in, their, uh, in their army. So that um, there's a good chance that, well, it's very obvious that Abram was very, very outnumbered. So Abram trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord that God is going to give him a plan to capture, help get Lot back. What I like about this story is because it's very easy to look at Lot and say, you deserve what you had coming. Look where you decided to live. You made some pretty stupid choices. You just handled those consequences. You figure out how you're going to get out of Sodom. You figure out how you're going to get out of captivity because you got yourself there. And I love the fact that Abram's generous and he says, you know what? Lot's part of my family. 
I'm going to risk my life and I'm going to risk my resources and I'm going, to go I'm going to go help him find freedom. So God gives a strategy to Abram how, how he's going to overtake these four kings. And sure enough, God gives him this incredible strategy to go in after night. And so Abram and his little army of 300 overtook the four kings and they got Lot and his family back. And they also got a lot of... Uh, a lot of possessions as they uh, were victorious in the war and they uh, recovered all of the possessions of Lot and his family. So Abram's pretty happy. Things went well. We recovered Lot, recovered his family, and so he goes down to meet with the king Melchizedek and the king Sodom. It's an interesting meeting. And I think it's interesting because it shows you how you, in one hand, you look at the story and you think, okay, Abram's been successful he won the battle, he got Lot and his family back, he got all the possessions back. you think the story would be over, but there's more to the story. The enemy wants to come in now and get the people back. The enemy always wants people back, and that was the plan of King Sodom, to come to that meeting and try to talk Abraham into giving the people back. But God had a better plan. He first sent Melchizedek there with bread and wine. And he said, okay, let's sit down, Abraham, and let's remember what God did. Remember, it was God who got Lot and his family out. It was God who gave you the victory. It was God who gave you the strategy. It's kind of easy sometimes when things go really well in our life and to think, look what I just did. And I love the story because it's a reminder of Melchizedek of look what God just did, but it's so easy to forget. And I think that's a beautiful picture of Melchizedek coming out with bread and wine and offering to bless God and to bless Abraham. And so then you notice Abraham participates in that. He receives the bread and wine. He receives the blessing. And then spontaneous, Abraham offered back to Melchizedek a tenth of everything that was won in the war. He offered him the first picture of a tithe in the Bible. It's a beautiful picture of the gratitude that Abraham had to God for what he had accomplished. And then comes up King Sodom. He's not going to let go yet. He still wants those people back. So it's interesting, King Sodom comes forward and he says to Lot, he says to Abraham, I'll tell you what, you can keep everything you captured. You can keep all of those possessions. Just give me the people back. I just want people, just give me Lot and his family back. But you keep all the possessions. It's interesting what a lie the King Sodom just said to Abraham. Because everything that Abraham won in the war was Abraham's to keep. It wasn't King Sodom's to give away. But seeing Sodom comes and he lies to Abraham to make him think that those possessions belong to him. That's how the enemy works. He always deceives. He has nothing to offer. He has nothing good or valuable that he could give to anybody. So all that he does is he comes and he lies. He lies, he manipulates, like he lied to Jesus and said, well, if you're the Son of God, turn these breads to stone. 
Jesus didn't need to take anything from the enemy because God's going to provide him every single thing he needs. And that's why I like this story of the two kings and Abraham meeting in that valley. Because it's a good reminder of the purpose of communion. It's a good reminder of what God does through communion. Is he grounds us in who God is, in what God has done for our life so we can withstand against the lies of the enemy that's always trying to say, I have something better. See, that's the enemy always coming in and saying, I have something better to offer you. But all that the enemy has to offer is lies and deceit and deceptions because he has nothing good to offer anybody. And Abraham could have easily fallen for the lie of Sodom. Easily could have. And I think that's why it's interesting that before the enemy lied, Melchizedek comes and he offers him bread and he offers him wine. He offers him kind of a taste of what communion is all about. And I believe that is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that we do celebrate communion in the church. It's a reminder to all of us of what God has done in our life and what Jesus has done in our life and what Jesus continues to do in our life. It's so easy to get caught up in the lies of the enemy, looking for success and looking for prosperity in other places. Communion is that good grounding reminder of what God has done. It's almost a continuation of what baptism is. It's a continuation of baptism, remembering that we came to Christ as sinners. We go under the water, we get cleansed, and we come out, and we receive the power of God in our life so we can be victorious. And that's what communion is about. It's a reminder of what God has done in our life. So I want to talk about four different things that we see in the New Testament that communion does for us. Actually, we probably could go on and list a lot more than just four benefits of communion, but I just want to talk about four today that we see in that picture of the two kings meeting with Abraham in the valley. And the, number one, the first thing is, is that communion reminds us of what is really important, reminds us of what God did in our life. In 1 Corinthians, it says, In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. See, communion is a time we remember what God has done in our life. It had been very easy for Abraham to look back and say, Look what I just did with my 318 men. But when you come to communion, it's a good time to remember what God has done in your life and to remember the victory that God has done, accomplished in your life. So as we take communion today, let's remember the victories that God has done in our life. Maybe you're at a place you're like, I don't know if I feel that victorious. Well, you've been victorious if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but I know sometimes we still have struggles in our life. Look at what Romans 8 verse 20. 32 says, it says, since he, Jesus, did not, since God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? I love that promise of God saying, look, I will give you every single thing you need. Maybe it doesn't come in the timing we would like, but it's a promise there he's going to give us everything we need. I remember what Sodom said. He said, look what I can give to you. 
You give me those people, I will give you possessions. We don't need to listen to the enemy because God says, I will give you every single thing you need. And God gets to decide what is every single thing we need. And that's a beautiful part of communion is remembering what God has done for us and remembering is what he is going to do through for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the second thing is baptism, I mean communion, causes us to live in great anticipation for Christ's return. It gives us anticipation that things are always going to get better that we can look forward to the future with anticipation. See, communion's a reminder to us too that maybe things aren't the way we want them right now. Maybe you're going through a hard time. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. I know there's some people here dealing with health issues and health reports that are scary. Communion's a reminder of anticipation of what Christ can do in our life. Recently, I learned this week that the word faith in the New Testament, several times when the word faith is used in the New Testament, the meaning means to be persuaded. Sometimes what God does in our life to increase our faith is He persuades us of what He can do for us. Sometimes you're in a hard situation, you're looking at a health report, or living with some medical situations that don't look very good, or maybe some kids' situations that don't look good, and we pray for your faith to increase. So when your faith is increasing, God's persuading you, I can take care of this. This is not a big issue for me. And that's why we need the grace of God in our life and the faith of God in our life. Because sometimes we need to be persuaded on a daily basis that God can make a way. That God can do something that we think is impossible. And sometimes when we come to communion, we say we're coming in anticipation, but we're also coming saying, God, would you persuade me? Because maybe I don't feel very encouraged right now. Maybe some of you, when we do communion today, that will be your prayer. God, I need some persuading right now. I know in my head, but my heart's not feeling that way. So I'm praying today as we take communion, may we all be persuaded that God's doing something bigger than we can understand. And the third thing is, and, and we learn from this text, is God encourages us to live in community. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says, When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? You know, it had been very easy for Abraham to look at his nephew Lot and say, You did that to yourself. What were you thinking? I'm not risking my life. See, communion is a reminder to all of us we live in community. We're a family together. And we got to support each other, encourage each other, look out for each other. And we got to find the lots that are not here, that need to be here. Part of communion is a reminder to us to search for those family members and friends that need to find their place into the body of Christ. And so we come to communion 
asking God to give us a strategy like he gave Abraham to see Lot come to freedom. And number four, communion brings more freedom in our life. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19 to 22, it says, What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are really gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God, and I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger than he is? See, I like this passage. It's a reminder to us that we're followers of Jesus 100% and we cannot follow the enemy in any way at all. When Abraham was sitting before the king of Jerusalem and the king of Sodom, he couldn't have one foot in each camp. He had to go after one or the other. And communion is a reminder to us. We got to be all in. We got to be all in. And I know it's easy to kind of fall over here a little bit. And communion is a reminder to us to get back on track with what God has for us. Communion is a time for us to reflect and say, okay, am I sitting at all at the table with demons? Am I sitting at the table not following, doing things that aren't honoring to God? It's a reminder to us to repent of that and to get right with God. I love a scripture in Deuteronomy 7, verse 26. Moses instructs the children of Israel to remove anything from the home that is not God-honoring. He tells the people of Israel, do you have anything in your house that doesn't honor God? See, back at that time, people had a lot of little uh, idols of foreign gods that they would keep in their house. You know, Moses was saying to people, hey, you got to get rid of that stuff. See, the truth is, for all of us, we need to follow the same instruction. Is there anything in our house that is not honoring to God that we keep? Or is there anything on our computer that is not honoring to God or anything in our cloud that is not honoring to God? And communion is a reminder to us, we got to get rid of things. Maybe they're physical objects. I know those little Buddha statues are kind of cool and trendy right now and, and design. But is that something God would say, yeah, I want a believer to have that in their house? There's little things that kind of creep into our house that sometimes we don't even realize. We didn't even do it intentionally. And sometimes God says to us, he's going to give us discernment to look at things in our house and say, yeah, maybe that's not right. See, it's not always the big, obvious thing. Sometimes there's a little things that just sneak into our life. And I think part of communion is a reminder to get spiritually right with God but physically, if there's anything in your life that's not honoring to God, to get rid of that as well. So as we come to communion today, let's come with that anticipation that God wants to persuade us that he's going to do more things in our life. Or maybe he's going to persuade us to have more confidence in the season we're going through. You know, part of communion, we believe and trust for healing Sometimes trusting and healing is trusting in the process of waiting. So I pray that you'll be encouraged today as we take communion.
that you'd be strengthened today to remember and look back on what God has done and have anticipation for what He's going to do and to celebrate the community that He's brought us in, but also to allow God to start purging things out of our life. I do believe strongly that 2019 is a year of freedom for Lake Effect Church. And sometimes God says, you want freedom. You're going you're gonna to have to remove some things of your life and in your life or maybe objects in your life. So I pray all of you would be sensitive to what God might want to do. So as we prepare to take communion, it's a good time to just sit for a minute and reflect before God, is there anything he wants you to remove from your life? Communion, we offer it, Jesus offered it to people that were followers of Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate in communion with us today. And if you're not really sure of who Jesus is and you're not ready to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then please don't feel any obligation when we pass the bread and the wine. Just pass it right over you. I, I, we respect the fact that there are some people here that are probably like, I'm not sure of really who Jesus is. I'm not, I haven't, I'm not sure. And this is a great place to be as you figure that out. Or if you're here today and you're like, I'm not really sure what all this Jesus stuff is. See, what Jesus calls people to do, if you want to be a Christian, Jesus says you simply need to follow Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. It's a person that follows Jesus Christ, that no longer lives for themselves and self-reliance, but instead says, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. And to follow Jesus Christ is to follow the Word of God. And if you say you're here today and you're like, I want to begin that journey, I want to begin that lifelong journey of following Jesus Christ, then please participate in communion with us. May that be your first act of following Jesus Christ. May that be your first act of a commitment to Jesus Christ, participating in what we refer to as the Lord's Supper, this communion, as we reflect back of what God has done for us.